You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. As you're turning there, what a fitting and beautiful hymn. Be thou my vision. That he would be the focus of our attention now. Lord willing, today we will be covering verses 12 through 16 of John chapter 19. So I'll ask you, if you're able at this time, to please stand with me. And we will read John chapter 19, verses 12 through 16 together, and then pray and begin. Beginning in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Thank you. You may be seated. If you're being seated, bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this time you've given us. Oh God, I thank You for Your Word. Father, I pray that You would meet with us now in a mighty way. Oh Lord, I do not have the ability in myself to declare truth, to impact souls. Lord, to glorify You, I need help by Your Spirit. I thank You that You are a gracious God who is pleased to give help to those who ask. And Lord, we do ask. Father, I ask that the meaning of these words would be clear to us. Lord, that a spirit of real humility would settle upon this place. That we would hear from our God and would respond as you would have us to. Father, I ask that you would guard me from error. Oh, Lord, shut my mouth. But I pray, oh God, for boldness, for authority, and for your power to be displayed in me and among us. Oh, Father, I ask that you would do these things, glorify your great name, and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this message is very simple. It's a question. Jesus or Caesar? Jesus or Caesar? Historically, you'll find that the early disciples of Christ Many of them face certain martyrdom and death over this very question. Are they going to say, Kaiser, Kurios, Caesar is Lord, or Jesus is Lord? Who is Lord? And that's the focus of our attention. But before we begin, I just have a brief introduction. I want to say this, that I praise God for His perfect providence in all things. And sometimes we might think that Biblical doctrines like the ones we're going to look at today are only relevant as we consider them in here and that they have no practical bearing out there. 
And that we live in a land which has honestly been so soaked with blessings from God temporally that we sometimes imagine that doctrines such as persecution, opposition, or hatred from the world are never going to actually affect us. We doubt very much that we'll ever see those kinds of things practically. And I want to be very clear with you. The reason for considering these particular doctrines is not in order that you and I can develop some sort of a martyr complex that we can go out decrying our own rights that are being infringed upon and try to set ourselves up as righteous before the world in contrast to them. It is so that we will be equipped to face all of these difficulties in real life and that we would be godly examples, that we would be testimonies of God's power as we go through them. And I say these things, you all know, any of you who are here regularly, you know that I don't plan out my sermon as far as how far I'm going to get. We started the Gospel of John almost four years ago and we inch along as the Lord sees fit. And so I fully trust that it is His perfect providence that has us in the very verses we're considering today. And whatever relevant applications you might see in the context of our world or this town at the present moment, these things are not being drawn out by me in an attempt to sway you one way or another. They're simply God, I believe, speaking to us as His people. And I trust Him to do that. I did not plan, nor could I have predicted, many of the things that are going on right now. And yet it does seem, as we sang, that the perfect wisdom of our God is prevailing yet again. And so we praise Him. And if you're one who has no idea what I'm talking about, you're probably better off for it. And in some ways, it doesn't really matter at all, because if you're a Christian, you're going to face opposition in the world and you need to be girded to be able to face those things. And so I ask these questions. Are you as a Christian going to live for truth? Is Jesus Christ going to be the captain of your convictions? Are you going to be prepared to proclaim his name no matter the cost? Paul told us in first, or 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live godly in Christ are going to be persecuted. And so here's the things I want you to be thinking about. How is it that you're going to respond to opposition? Are you going to completely avoid opposition by just keeping your mouth shut? Are you going to attack those who oppose you with violence? Are you going to lend your voice to the devil's anthem in the midst of persecution and opposition? Or are you going to be like Christ? It's a tall order, and none of us are able to do it, myself included, apart from the Spirit of Christ at work in us. So these are the very practical things I hope that we see demonstrated plainly in our verses today, beginning in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. You know, sometimes... The most convicting thing that a person can hear is silence. And I know as a preacher, I'm often inclined to think what people really need to hear to be convicted is me telling them how they need to be convicted. And I believe in a lot of Pilate's activities here that sometimes silence does produce the most conviction. You see, before he's asked Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus doesn't answer him. And we saw that last week, how that kind of prompted Pilate to begin pressing him a little bit further, a little bit harder. But here in this text, we see Jesus has answered him after beating him and parading him before the people. And he very well may have expected Jesus to respond in anger and desperate denials of guilt. My question is, what could Pilate do with the silent defendant? 
who he himself saw is probably likely innocent. This is what's going on in this scene. So Pilate began seeking to release him. And when Jesus did speak, he has already acknowledged Pilate's authority. Though he recognized Pilate would have no authority except it was given him from above. We saw that last week in verse 11. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So Jesus has already acknowledged his authority, and yet he's not railing against him for this wicked trial that he's enduring. He's being, he's subjecting himself to these things. And so the result of this in our text today is that Pilate appears desperate to release Jesus. And I think you could probably make a case from the beginning of this entire interaction that Pilate has been interested in releasing Jesus all along. We've seen that in our text. Something in the truth of Christ's words was appealing to Pilate's conscience. And one thing you and I may all thank God for, and we talked about this in the Sunday school, and I had a direct conversation with someone this week about this, is we ought to thank God for the fact that God Himself has written His law on the conscience even of unbelievers. And much of the time they don't live in light of that conscience, but when they do... It's a blessing to everyone. It's a good thing when the non-believer lives according to their conscience. And that's what we see. You see Pilate being almost nagged and burdened by the fact that he knew Jesus was innocent. And he's trying to release him. The next part of verse 12, how do they respond? How do they respond to Pilate trying to release him? It says the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. In our text today, we see the Jews employing one of the devil's favorite strategies since the beginning of time. What is it? He takes something that's true and applies it dishonestly. He takes something that's right. He twists the scriptures themselves for his own purpose. And the Jews are doing exactly that here. They're taking the truth. Jesus is a king. And they're trying to manipulate and stir up wrath and anger amongst Caesar and amongst the Romans against Jesus in light of that true statement. The truth is, there only can be one ultimate authority. It's either going to be Jesus or it's going to be Caesar. And that cannot be denied. It's either going to be Jesus or it's going to be the system of this world which is wrought with corruption and sin, but it cannot be both. And as we've seen repeatedly in John's gospel, Jesus, without question, is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He has no equal and all in creation are in subject subjection to his will. Jesus is supreme. He has total authority over all creation. And this is a truth which cannot be compromised. We cannot compromise the truth that Jesus is king. Just consider for a moment a few scriptures that we've heard in John that that demonstrate this for us, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 15. If you want to look back with me or take this down, John 15, verse 18, consider this in light of what these Jews are saying about Jesus. Jesus Himself said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And just a little bit forward in the reading, you can see in John chapter 16, the first four verses, we read this again from our Lord. 
He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And then again, John 16 and verse 33, we read this. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world... You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. These expressions pointing us to the reality that Jesus is the authority in all of creation. And we're to live in light of that fact. And there's going to be a rub an opposition that comes because of us doing that. But then we don't leave it even to the gospel accounts. We can consider from John's epistle. The first epistle, chapter two and verse 15, John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. And then he goes on in chapter three of that same epistle in verse 13 to say, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And then James in chapter four and verse four says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so biblically, what truth is it that these Jews are presenting to Pilate here? It is certainly true that there is a contrast between Jesus and Caesar. There is a contrast between the authority of Christ and the supposed authority of this man, Caesar, who claimed himself to be God, as a matter of fact. There is a distinction in this. They're right about that. And it's unequivocally true that to be a Christian means you will be contrasted with the world. You cannot be a friend of God and a friend of the world at the same time. And we as Christians must be apologetically opposed to any system which sets itself up as an authority over Jesus Christ. We must be loyal to our Savior. John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father Except through me. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So what's wrong with the Jews in saying this? Do you think it's an okay thing that they're saying what they're saying here? What do they actually mean by it? Taking the truth of what Jesus himself has said about himself and seeking to do something, do mischief with it. That's what's going on in our text. There's a sinful dishonesty in these Jews. They're presenting the fact that Jesus has made himself king and authority. They're putting that forward as though he were some kind of violent and militaristic and hateful kind of opponent to Rome. They're asserting that Jesus is not living in subjection to the authority of Caesar. They're making Jesus out to be a political agitator. They're taking the truth of Christ's words and they're applying them as though he were being malicious. Jesus has told us already they hated him without a cause. He didn't have any cause for them to hate him the way that they did. But they're taking his words and abusing them. They conveniently are failing to mention what Jesus himself said on one occasion when he was pressed with this very question. He was asked, what's your attitude towards Roman oppression? How is it that you've come to deal with Rome, Jesus? He was asked. They could have repeated what Jesus said, but that's not what they do. They conveniently ignore this part. Look with me for a moment at Luke chapter 20. 
Luke chapter 20. Let's ask Lord Jesus, what do you have to say to us about this Roman tyranny? What is your response to how you should live in light of Rome? Though you are the matchless king, though you are the authority, Jesus, what does our authority tell us? He says, in, it says in verse 19 of Luke 20, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Here they are. They're trying to get him delivered up to Pilate here, the governor, trying to catch him. So they ask him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able to, in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Now here's what we need to realize. When they asked Jesus, what are we supposed to do about Caesar's authority? Jesus says, render unto Caesar. Honor the king. Honor Caesar. Do what's right as it relates to this coin. But whose image are you made in? Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. If he taxes you, give him the money. It's his anyway. But whose image are you made in? Render yourself unto God is the idea. But Jesus doesn't say, all right, fellas, let's gather up our military. Let's go take this Roman governor out. But that's what a lot of them wanted him to do. And here they are misrepresenting Jesus before Pilate as though that exactly was what he came to do. And it's not. And so the question comes to us in this way. If we are rightly, as Jesus demonstrates in that text in Luke, if we are supposed to honor the authorities that exist in a fallen world, does that mean that we never open our mouths and proclaim truth? Should we ignore that which is opposed to Christ and his gospel for fear of being either misunderstood, misquoted or slandered? Jesus certainly was. He said things that were convicting and people misquoted and misapplied what he said. They twisted what he said. And yet he still spoke truth. And secondly, if we do proclaim truth, does that mean that in our proclamation of truth that we're trying to go to war against the systems of this world in a carnal way? Is there a context in which we're free to proclaim the truth of God's word as the authority and seek to love and be gracious to those we're surrounded by in whatever context you find yourself? I believe that's exactly what we see modeled in our Lord. But consider, move forward with me to verse 13 of John 19. So when Pilate heard these things, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement. And in Aramaic, the main thing for us to realize about this verse today is that this public trial, it's taking place in a very public way. We might often like to think that, and we're definitely told this by those who are opposed to truth, it's okay if you're a Christian as long as you keep it in here, in these four walls. As soon as it begins to affect things out there, well, now hold on just a minute. Don't you know not everybody agrees with you? Well, that's okay. We're going to love them anyway, but we're going to tell them the truth because we want them to be saved. We want them to see Jesus is the only way. So we tell them the truth. But we do so how? The point is, this was a very public thing taking place here. The stone pavement, presumably in the Greek, 
But then the, in Aramaic, Gabatha, what that tells you is this was a known place. It was known to Greek-speaking people as well as Aramaic-speaking Hebrews or Jews. And the question is, what is this public question that is put to the people? Verse 14, He takes him into this public place of judgment before the people. And He says this, Verse 14, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your King. Now, surely we could say much more about what it means that this was the day of preparation of the Passover. And we could also look at the reality and relationship of this sixth hour. But for our purposes today, suffice it to say this, that all of this is unfolding as we've been frequently noting in fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. It's not a coincidence that this is happening on the day of preparation of the Passover. You've got to prepare the Passover lamb before you sacrifice it. Jesus is being prepared. He's being proved. He's being tried, examined. Is He really the spotless lamb? Is He going to, in a moment of weakness, lash out against the authorities as they're criticizing Him? Is He going to uphold perfect righteousness all the way to death? Is He truly a white, spotless lamb or not? That's the idea here. That's what's going on. Glory and wonder that God was pleased to offer up His only Son as the Passover for our sins. And He did it through the hands of these wicked people. And Pilate says to the Jews, Behold your King. In other words, Pilate's presenting Jesus after already beating Him, mind you. And now he's setting Him here in this place of judgment. He's saying, Is this pitiful and weak man your King? Is this one who's at my mercy? And Caesar's mercy, is he really your king? Do you believe this Jesus has authority over Caesar? Are the systems of evil men within this world, are they subject to Jesus? What do you say about this Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Well, how do they respond? What do they say? Verse 15, they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. They said, Away with him. Crucify him. Kill him. This Jesus threatens our way of life. He threatens our peace with Rome. If he goes on like this, it's going to cost us comfort. We're not going to be able to continue with the status quo. If Jesus keeps preaching and you associate him with the Jews, Rome's coming after us. The world that hates the exclusive nature of the message of Christ, they're not going to tolerate it. But I ask, does that give us an excuse to deny our Lord and Master by being foolish in the way that we engage the lost world? By being hateful and bitter against the opposition? What they say, away with them, they say, shut him up. We would rather hail Caesar as Lord than submit to the Savior of the world. Here's my question to you. What are you going to say about this Jesus? Even as He was set at this stone pavement, this public declaration of Jesus as King, He set before you today. Here's Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the spotless Lamb of God, in front of you. And I do not hesitate to say that He is King over Caesar. I do not hesitate to say you cannot be a friend of Jesus and a friend of the world at the same time. And not because I think that. Jesus says that. The Bible says that. You see, Jesus did not come into this world merely to make friends. Not in that sense. He came into this world 
to die upon the cross for the sins of his people. And this Jesus requires our absolute love, affection, and submission. I ask, is Jesus king or not? What are you going to do with him? What did they do with him? Verse 16, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Here's the greatest problem that people face when they hear the gospel of Christ. We all assume that we know what's best and that we can be our own authority for right and wrong. We come to consider Jesus as though we were his judge, much like Pilate and the Jews, ready to criticize him, ready to challenge his authority at every turn. And if we find fault in the words of Jesus or if his words are likely to cost me something, I'll just ignore those things and only hold on to the things I like in favor of my own imaginations. But what do you say to this? What do you say here today about the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified? How can you even begin to deny the guilt of your own sin? You cannot begin to do that. There's nothing in this world that tells you that you're guiltless. All of creation is testifying against us. We are guilty. Do you really expect that you're going to be declared righteous before a holy God? You, like Pilate, have a conscience that's given you by God that's telling you you will not be found guiltless before a holy God. You know this. And further, even than your conscience, the revelation of God's word and God's law agrees with your conscience. It tells you you're guilty. It tells you that God is just. And it tells you that God will not let those who are guilty go unpunished. So I ask, where does that leave you? How is it that a good God can love and forgive you? Here's the question. They delivered him over to be crucified. The almighty matchless creator of the universe was nailed to this cruel cross as the weight of your sin was on him. What for? Just listen. Listen to the record of Isaiah in chapter 53. And I don't care how many times you've heard this text quoted. Listen to it with fresh ears. Listen to it trusting that your God is speaking to you today. He says in Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Are you one who's come to rejoice in this one? This one who bears the iniquity of his people as he dies, as the father crushes him and kills his only son, as though he were a ruined, wretched sinner as you and I. Do you rejoice to hear that? Praising God to hear that. My question is, how then are we to live? Are we to be people of truth? And if we are, if we proclaim truth, how ought we to respond whenever opposition comes against the truth? Matthew chapter 5. Very popular section of Scripture. Just read verses 2 through 12 with me. In case you haven't noticed, I'm trying to smother everything out of my mouth today with Scripture. God's Word, not my opinion. Let God be glorified and let Him be the one who tells truth and every man a liar. God says in verse 2, And He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And again, Peter has much the same thing to tell us in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The last section of Scripture I want to look at with you is picking up in verse 13 down through verse 25 of 1 Peter chapter 2. But before we do that, I want to make a point here. Peter says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know what that means? That if you're pursuing God in righteousness and people say that you're not, you may not be vindicated in this life. On the day of visitation, the final day when all things are exposed, and Peter's going to go on and he doesn't assume that just because you're a Christian that the works you do out there are necessarily wrought from pure motives. We all must examine ourselves. But it is God who is to judge. 
And we see finally 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, which takes us right back to our text in John chapter 19. Listen to this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, suffering at the hands of cruel men unjustly. What is His model and example? Did He proclaim that which was true? Did He... Did he say, this is true, there is one way and it's only by me? Yes, he did. Whenever the world hated him for it, he didn't rally up the boys and start a militia. He didn't go attacking those systems that were in place. As a matter of fact, he just told Pilate, God's the one who's put you in authority, Pilate. He's the one who's put you there. Peter just told us that we're to honor the emperor even if he does unjust things. We honor them. God has them in authority. And you know the tendency is, if you're ever going to take a position for truth in a world that by and large hates God, there are things going to be said about you that are not true. And I almost feel somewhat a measure of temptation towards hypocrisy. Don't revile. Don't try to justify or vindicate yourself. But that's why I started the message by telling you, you know what? This text is where God has us today. Here's my hope for you. The disciples followed in their Lord's footsteps. They said we had better obey God rather than man. And when man hated them for obeying God, they submitted to the cruelty, to the martyrdom, to the oppression and objection. Peter says, you know, trust yourself to God and trust yourself to the one, the one who loved you enough to die to save your soul and, and that you might be cleansed of all your sin and trust yourself to him. He he is good and He's able to care for you. So my final appeal is to pray that God would give us all grace and wisdom to not stop proclaiming truth, but to do so with patience and love, to endure opposition, not for your own glory, but for His, and that you would be equipped to suffer well in all humility for the sake of your King, 
The one who died for you. And if you're not a Christian, let me tell you, there is no Savior like this anywhere else. There is no Savior who vindicates His own, who loves His own, even His own who at times, as we all are, are guilty. Even as Christians of having poor motives and wrong ideas. He forgives and restores and loves His enemies. I pray you would find love and forgiveness in the Christ who died for sin and for sinners. And I pray this encourages you, that it equips you to honor your God in the context He's placed you. So with that, I'll ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, You have been good. I pray that You would give us extra measures of humility toward all. Lord, that we might honor You with our conduct. Lord, that the Gospel would go forth. Let us be faithful witnesses of You. Not by our own strength, but by Yours. I pray, O oh Father, You would bless us. Bless all that we have remaining to do in this day and the week ahead. I pray Your hand would be upon us and Your Spirit would guide us. We praise You for Your Son. It's in His name that I pray. Amen.